Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. So there are stories, there are movies that we see in Hollywood and, uh, and in books that are wrapped up nicely. And they, they, the themes are obvious. The Bible is not one of those books. Uh, but rather, the Bible presents the complexities of life. Tonight is one of those chapters that really deals with the complexities of life. It's a messy situation. Quite frankly, it's, it's embarrassing for the nation of Israel. It's in, it, it, it shows flaws in the heroes of the book of the Bible. But this is evidence of the fact, guys, that this book was not written by the heroes. But it was ultimately written by God. Because there are flaws in the characters. There are big question marks that if, if this was a fiction story, they would make sure it was, it was answered correctly and left with no questions. Now, last chapter, what we saw was Jacob and his family arriving back to the promised land, and they set up stakes right next to a Canaanite town that we know as Shechem, named after the the prince of the town, Shechem. Now, these Canaanites are typically, in the Bible, symbolic of sin, of compromise in a believer's life. Like the Israelites, they were not supposed to walk in the way of the Canaanites. They weren't supposed to walk with the Canaanites. And a believer is not supposed to walk in sin, is not supposed to harbor sin or have sin in their lives either. Uh, A believer, if you allow yourself to be around sin, that that sin will eventually affect you. If you've got it kind of over here just in arm's reach, you're making provisions for the flesh and it's only a matter of time before that sin enters in. And we see that with Jacob. As he dwells next to the Canaanites, it tragically affects him and his family as well. So let's jump right in to verse 1. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the, woman, the women of the land. So Dinah, the, as far as we know, the only girl in the family, and she's just dying to get some girl time. And so either she's going into town to find girlfriends or she's already made friends in town and this is a regular thing that she's doing. But I just want to make it known, the Canaanite towns were not places you'd want your kids making friends. Like, this was not a place you would want your daughter to go hang out by herself. In fact, one commentator noted that a young woman of age alone in a Canaanite town would be considered fair game. They're basically saying, hey, I'm available. And they're unprotected. They would, they would understand that. I mean, think about how bad Sodom was. You guys remember that story. Now, granted, Shechem's probably not quite as bad as Sodom, but nevertheless, this is the way of the Canaanites. They don't have a high standard of sexual purity. So Dinah heads into town alone to make some friends or to meet her friends, but she shows a real lack of discretion by doing so. And she's about to get into this horrible situation, guys. And what what we're about to read is, is difficult, it's horrible, and it is in no way Dinah's fault But it it definitely could have been prevented if she had a a little more um, discretion about going into town, if she she was a little bit wiser. My my wife, she's taken some self-defense courses for women, and she said one of the main things that they push, they say, if you really want to defend yourself, is to avoid having to defend yourself altogether. Exercise self-awareness is what they say. Not not just self-awareness, but situational awareness is what I meant to say. Be mindful of your surroundings and don't put yourself in a precarious situation. They say that's the best, that's like the number one thing you can do 
to protect yourself. Um, and Dinah doesn't use this type of awareness or discretion. I mean, this is a, a rough place to go walking around by yourself for a young lady. And she's a teenager, likely. She's likely in her mid-teens. And some of you understand, I mean, we all know what it was like to be a teenager. And I don't know if you have experience around teenagers right now, but there is this imbalance with teenagers between their desire for independence and the actual amount of life experience and, and common sense that they have. It's not really matched, right? They, you want to get out there and, and have the world be your oyster, but yet you have so many lessons that you've got to learn. And we see this in Dinah uh, taking place right now. Verse 2, it says, And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. That word humiliated uh, is translated afflicted even. Uh, afflicted her. And it's been debated now as to what this prince has done, whether he seduced her. And this was more like statutory rape. It was consensual to a degree. Or if, if, if this was just outright, you know, f- uh, taking her by force. Um, and honestly, guys, I, I've spent a ton of time this week studying this, looking into it. And I still don't know for sure. I'm still wrestling with that. Which one it was. Because honestly, the original language in verse 2 that we just read makes a strong case for the worst of the two. That word there for humiliated, as I said, it can be translated afflicted. And it's also the same word used when David's son Amnon uh, forces himself on his half-sister. It's, and, and it's clearly rape in that instance. And in this instance, it's the same word used. So there's a strong case in the verbiage that it was the worst of the two. But as we, read, as, as we continue to read, the context seems to support perhaps Dinah being on board with the, that it was consensual, that it was more of a statutory rape type of situation, that she was seduced by this prince of the land, which is also possible. So honestly, I, I'm just going to be up front and say I don't know for sure. Either way, it's, it's not a good situation. Either way, it's tragic. And I do just want to address this very sensitive subject uh, before we move on, lest you get the impression that as we read this, you think that this isn't a big deal to the Lord. Because the Bible, like I said, especially through the Old Testament, the Bible just presents things as they happened. And we don't often get a ton of explanation that we, that we want from God. Sometimes a situation arises in the Bible and we want God to, to personally address the issue right then and there. And we don't always get that in the chapter itself. Uh, but I want to assure you that God does not approve of this. That God does not uh, intend for this to happen to anyone. And in fact, in Deuteronomy 22, when the law is given to the Israelites... God gives a law regarding this type of behavior that if someone was caught forcing themselves upon someone else, the penalty would be death. You would be, you would be killed. And i got to say that I'm not completely opposed to that rule being the case for us today either. Could you imagine uh, how much good it would do if anytime somebody wanted to do that, they understood they were taking their life into their own hands? But essentially what God was saying by giving that law to the Israelites is if you violate another individual to this degree, in this way, you tear up your right to life card. You have just taken your life into your own hands and 
just as someone who breaks into someone's house at night can potentially take another life, they're deserving of death in the law, so is, so is rape. That, that you're taking your life into your own hands and if you're caught, you're punished by death. That's how the Lord feels. And I want to tell you, He doesn't delight in this, yet God can restore this. This is one of the most difficult things that, some, that an individual can go through. And one of the more twisted aspects of this particular experience is that what happens is the shame that the guilty party should feel is actually felt by the, the, victim, the victimized party. Shame is a huge part of this experience of having to go through it. And, and I want to say that there's so much healing in Christ and, and forgiveness in Christ and um, that a, a big part of the battle for those who've gone through this is understanding that the shame does not belong to them. Someone who's experienced this, the shame does, if you've ever experienced anything like this and you felt that shame, the shame does not belong to you. It belongs to the offensive party. Um, and it's a complicated situation. But God is so good and we've even seen people restored and healed. I mean, you look at Mary Magdalene who had to live in prostitution and Jesus restores her life. There's healing in Christ for even these situations. But you do have to ask, where's Jacob in all this as it's happening? Where's Leah? If this is their only daughter, where are the parents? It, does, it seems a bit like parental negligence to me here. I don't mean to point, point fingers or pretend like I know everything about the situation, but it does seem like the parents dropped the ball because Dinah should never have gone, been allowed to go into Canaan by herself. And maybe that's just me talking as a strict dad. But I, I will say there is a stigma regarding parents who shelter their kids in our culture today. I've, I've heard it. I've had conversations about like, you know, I don't want to over-shelter my kids or don't over-shelter your, don't be overly protective. And I, I want to say we have to be careful as parents because it's your job as a parent to shelter and protect your children. It's your job to shelter them. The Bible says to train a child in the way they should go. And often the training ground is in a, uh, a, pr- a protected and in a sheltered environment, isn't it? I mean, think about the strictest military camp trainings. Even they won't send their soldiers straight into combat without proper training in a sheltered, controlled environment. And yet, a lot of parents do that. They, they throw their kids out into the world without proper training. Jacob and Leah seem to just allow Dinah to go into the world without having learned some, some lessons about discretion, about watching out with who they're running with. Verse 3, and it says, And his, that is Shechem's soul, was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So after defiling Dinah, he decides that he likes her enough to actually try to honor her. Which, guys, it, does, it doesn't work that way. Right? If you want to honor a woman, it's, you do it by respecting her by preserving her integrity and her purity and her reputation. That's how you honor a woman. You don't sleep with them first. All that says is that you can't control yourself. And that's not love, that's, that's lust. And, and yet, here he is, now, now having this deep emotional experience with her, decides he loves her and he wants to honor her now. And it could be that he's just trying to make amends and try to do the right thing after this mistake, after this horrible situation. But... Wooing her into marriage, that's not going to necessarily make things better or fix the situation. 
Now, if she's smart, she'd, she'd get away from this guy as fast as possible. Um, but it does, as I said, it, as we read on, it does seem like she was wooed. That her heart was won over by this prince of the land who violated her. Marriage doesn't necessarily fix an already unhealthy situation. We tend to think that. We tend to think, man, if I could only get this man to commit to me, then we'll have a good relationship. Man, if this girl would only just marry me, then we would have the perfect situation. No, that's not necessarily true. Marriage is not a quick fix. And if you have an unhealthy relationship, your unhealthy issues don't just go away because you get married. And so this guy's pursuing, honoring her, pursuing marriage, but that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a healthy situation. In fact, the whole point of marriage is to honor God. Not, to, not just to fix messy situations, it's to honor the Lord. It's to do it right. And so if someone's not honoring God before marriage, why would they honor God in marriage? So be careful, ladies especially, with these sweet-talking men. Guys can get real romantic when they want something from you. They can turn that romance on quick, okay? Please show discretion and discernment and look through that. Try to really learn the difference between a player and someone who truly honors God. And one of the most obvious differences is the, the one who wants to honor God will honor you as well. And they'll wait. They'll wait until marriage. So now, it's not a coincidence, guys, that these strong emotions follow this, this sexual encounter here for Shechem. And that's because sex is a powerful thing that's, that's really, guys, only meant for a husband and wife to experience. It's, within a marriage, it's like glue. It, it brings a marriage together. It keeps a husband and wife connected in a special way, bonded emotionally in a special way. But outside of marriage, it's, it's a dangerous thing to, to play with. It's, and it brings on strong emotional experiences that will cause you to think this other person is the right one when they're not even the right one. It will, it will cloud your judgment. If you become sexually active with someone else outside of marriage, it will cloud your judgment of that other person. It's kind of like when you go to the grocery store and you're starving and you stop shopping with your brain and the things you need on your list and you start going down the candy aisle and shopping with your with your stomach, if you're in that position, if you're wanting to get in that position, stop. Put the double-stuffed Oreos down <clears throat> and go back to your grocery list, okay? Don't, and I counsel people all the time who, who make the mistake already of, of being with somebody uh, sexually, intimately, and I say, if you really want to honor God, stop having sex, number one, because you... And I don't ever have to tell anybody that. They know that. People know that. Um, especially Christians. But I also have to tell them, look, if you really want to make room for God to confirm if this person is Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, you have to stop sleeping together. Otherwise, you aren't going to be emotionally clear enough, sober-minded enough to make that call. And, 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 you know, sometimes it works out. But oftentimes, more often than not, guys it results in an unhealthy marriage and an unhealthy lifestyle and an unhealthy situation. Again, because if they don't honor God before marriage, why would they honor God when you're married? Right? So Shechem, he's, he's, he's got the, the Tweety Birds and, and hearts going around him and he's all like Twitter-pated, like they say in that Bambi movie. Verse 4, it says, So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. 
Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. For such a thing must not be done. So as Jacob finds out and the brothers find out, it says Jacob holds his peace. And this is really the big question. Why would Jacob, why wouldn't he flip out at this? Why, why does he hold his peace? The brothers rightfully get upset at this. You know, Dinah, if Dinah were just a wayward teen, his reaction would be a little more, would make a little more sense. If this was like violent, a violent situation, it makes it harder to understand why he would respond this way. If she's been violated and, and kidnapped, even as we'll see in verse 26, Dinah's actually living at Shechem's right now, which again lends to it maybe being consensual, like she wanted to be there. Like she's staying at his house and everything. Or she's kidnapped. I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. There's a lot of questions for me still. But why would Jacob act this way? It's, I think, perhaps because he's, he's maybe trying to avoid a war. And I think that's something we overlook. We, we put this in our context. Let's say you and another family up the road here. But this is like the tribal situation. Where you have two different people groups who could go out to war with each other at any moment. And so it very well could be that Jacob's trying to be diplomatic and he might be freaking out on the inside, but he's trying to prevent uh, going to battle and going to war. That could very well be what's taking place here. Now, if you guys remember what happened when, when Jacob went to go to obtain a bride, Laban said, hey, seven years for my daughter. And he had to wait seven years and then he had to wait another seven years to be with Rachel. And they honored each other sexually. Laban made sure of it. Rachel's brothers made sure of it. So what we learned was that they have a really high standard for sexual purity. The Israelites, these, these brothers do. They, they would understand this. They would understand their role to protect their daughter's pure, or their sister's integrity and their sister's purity. And so they are rightfully outraged. But maybe just to give a little more context that helps understand this, Dinah is Leah's daughter. Leah has four other sons. Leah is not the favored wife. And therefore, Leah's kids were not the favored kids. We saw that last chapter as Jacob started to already favor Joseph and they're starting to pick up on this favoritism toward Joseph. There's already animosity building toward Jacob. These kids are already feeling maybe a little underloved and underappreciated by their dad. And now they're outraged and it seems to them like Jacob is just cool as a cucumber. That he's being passive about this situation. And so that might be a little more insight as to why these guys do what they do. And they, they get enraged. Verse 8, it says, But Hamor spoke with them. So this is the chieftain now speaking on behalf of the prince. It says, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father uh, and to her brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me for, a, for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Now, Hamor and Shechem 
come in with this deal. They're wheeling and dealing. And they're like, hey, why don't we just become one tribe? Why don't you guys start doing business with us and we'll marry your girls and you'll marry our girls and we'll just kind of, we'll merge, assimilate. And this is what you would do back in the days of where there were tribes and tri- that tribalism with chieftains. You could assimilate into a larger tribe or you would remain distinct if you could keep peace or eventually you would have to go to war and defend your own culture and defend your own right. This was the way of life for them. So don't lose sight of that fact. Uh, Let's not view this through our insulated Western culture glasses, okay? Um, There's a lot at stake here. There's a lot going on here. And for them to just say, hey, we're willing to, to, to follow some of your customs. You can be assimilated into our society. But let's remember the big picture. God has separated Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to make a new nation, not to act like all the other nations, So if they were to do this, this would be going against God's plan and God's covenant. So we know right away, if God's going to create a new nation, then this can't happen. They can't just assimilate into the Canaanite town. This is often how the enemy works. The enemy of your soul, that is, he'll come into your life and he'll he'll seduce you. He'll tempt you. He'll violate you. Then he'll wheel and deal with you and get you to realize how you need him in your life how you can't live without the things he's providing for you. And all of a sudden, you partner with the work of the enemy in your life, and he takes everything from you. We'll find out that the Canaanites, now Shechem, he's in love. He certainly wants this bride. But the other Canaanites, they want to take Jacob's livestock. They want his riches. And that's what the enemy wants. If you give, a, if you give the enemy an open door invitation into your life, if you partner with the work of the enemy, he will take all that you have. You will have nothing. It's, it's an interesting paradox because the Lord wants you to choose him. The Lord wants you to give him everything. And when you do that, God supplies everything that you need. When you surrender everything to the Lord, God gives you all that you need and more. The enemy, however, promises that you can keep everything. But then he takes it all from you. You see the difference? This is not what God has for the, for the Israelites, and that's not what God has for you spiritually We don't negotiate with terrorists, right? You don't negotiate with the devil. You don't negotiate with sin. It's going to get you nowhere. Now, as a father, this would be the moment where I get all Liam Nielsen on them and and start to bring about my own revenge. I mean, I would be really... If I've got these two guys here in my household and they're outnumbered at this point because i got all my boys, I I would be tempted to lay on some hands with these guys after what they've done to my daughter. But Jacob keeps his peace. And again, he could be trying to avoid this war situation, which would be understandable. But unfortunately, what we'll see here is that in his silence, he allows his sons to take over and it it gets bad. Hey everyone, Pastor Sean here. You've been listening to a teaching from Ignition Tucson, the Young Adults Ministry of Calvary Tucson. Our hope is that through this ministry, your heart would be ignited to live boldly for Christ. If you live in the greater Tucson area and you're between the ages of 18 and 28, we want to invite you out to join us in person. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus on Speedway in Camino Seco. We hope to see you there. God bless.